Jobcast, making stuff up as we go along. With Ian Morrison, Gabriella Perez, Josh Hayes, Laura Dreeson, Benjamin Shaw, Jake Starberg Morgan, and Luke Hart. The Jobcast, August 2018 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Josh, and joining me in the studio are Laura and Ben. Hello. I, I, for some reason, I, I was confused that we're here. <laughs> I'm all, like, for some reason, I always expect something to happen after that, and it never does. It's always just hello, and then. Uh. What would you like us to say? I don't know. What What do you want to say? <laughs> I don't know. I've just bought a boat. Uh, whoa. That is really so can we get this over with, please, because I want yeah. to go and see it. Yeah, that's totally fair. <laughs> Look, we are actually human. <laughs> um, in the show this time, Luke Hart interviews Kunal Mooley about EM counterparts to gravitational waves, and Ian Morris and Gabby Perez take a look at what's happening in the August night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Jake Starberg Morgan with this month's news. In the news this month, K2 is forced to hibernate, a particle appears in Antarctica, and a new scale for close encounters. You're no doubt familiar with the Kepler spacecraft that was launched back in 2009 to find exoplanets using the transit method. Its job was to stare at a single patch of sky over many years to find out if exoplanets were common in our galaxy. And the answer to that question is yes. After its second reaction wheel failed in 2012, Kepler could no longer maintain its stable pointing, and so the craft was repurposed as the K2 mission. This is presently undertaking a variety of 90-day campaigns across the night sky, using a combination of the remaining two wheels and onboard fuel to point the telescope. But now, Kepler is running on empty. At the start of July, NASA controllers received a warning that the craft is now running very low on fuel. The remaining reserves are expected to be fully depleted in the next few months. As the craft is in an Earth-trailing orbit, any kind of resupply is impossible. So the priority of the mission team now is to retrieve the data currently on the spacecraft and then undertake final observations, fuel permitting. For now, the spacecraft is parked, effectively hibernating, in a so-called no-fuel-use safe mode. On August 2nd, it should wake up orient its antenna towards Earth, and beam down the data, which can then be picked up by NASA's Deep Space Network, a network of radio receivers in the US, Spain, and Australia. If this is successful, the 19th and most likely final observing campaign will commence on August 6th. In the meantime, scientists are continuing to mine existing data already on the ground. Among other findings, Recently, 24 new planet discoveries were made using data from K2 Campaign 10, adding to the spacecraft's growing bounty of 2,650 confirmed planets. This treasure trove will likely keep us busy for many years to come. Last September, an observatory in the Antarctic detected a single particle. This particle was a high-energy neutrino picked up by the IceCube Neutrino Observatory a cubic kilometers worth of ice embedded with over 5,000 optical sensors, constantly looking for the Cherenkov radiation produced by a neutrino interacting with baryonic matter. As they only interact via the weak nuclear force, such events are extremely rare. Ice Cube is able to spot one every few minutes or so, but these events are typically low energy, 
usually from cosmic rays striking particles in the Earth's atmosphere and creating a shower of decay products, including neutrinos. We know that the Sun can also generate neutrinos directly, as can violent astronomical events such as supernovae, but this still doesn't account for the whole population. The single neutrino picked up in September 2017 had an energy of 300 tera electron volts, 46 times more energetic than the particles circulated by the LHC. Hence, it had to be extragalactic in origin. Astronomers now think they know where September's neutrino came from, however, thanks to multi-messenger astronomy. By combining ice cubes observation with some rapid X-ray follow-up, nine sources of energetic X-rays were observed. One of these was a blazer, a giant elliptical galaxy with a supermassive, rapidly spinning black hole at its core. This blazer, designated TXS 0506 plus 056, was observed to be flaring, releasing more X-rays and gamma rays than usual. Over the next few days, astronomers looked at the gamma ray emission of the blazer, as observed by the Fermi telescope, and searched through IceCube's archival data, spanning nine and a half years. The team found that the blazar had been unusually active, and that an excess of high-energy neutrinos had been observed coming from the direction of the blazar. This would suggest, if not outright confirm, that blazars can be a source of high-energy cosmic neutrinos, a success for the burgeoning field of multi-messenger neutrino astronomy. And finally, if you saw a story about aliens on TV or online, how excited would you be? Here's a more subtle question for you. If you saw a story about aliens on TV or online, how excited should you be? To answer this question, the Rigo scale is used, a tool used by astronomers searching for extraterrestrial intelligence to help communicate to the public how excited they should be about what has been observed. The scale measures the consequences for humans if the signal really is from aliens, as well as the probability that the signal is genuinely extraterrestrial, and not a natural phenomenon or human-made. The scale gives a score between 0 and 10, so that the public can quickly see how important a signal really is. However, there have been many dubious signals reported as aliens over the years, and learning the truth about these stories is becoming increasingly difficult. As such, an updated Rio scale is required. A team of international researchers, led by scientists from the University of St. Andrews and the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, is now taking on this task. The new study, led by Dr. Duncan Forgan at the University of St. Andrews Center for Exoplanet Science, highlights the changing nature of news media, the growth of 24-hour news, and the new landscape of social media. Coupled with an increase in efforts to detect extraterrestrial intelligence by teams around the world, the Rio scale is now needed more than ever, and it must remain relevant when communicating to the public about alien signals. The lead author on the study, Dr. Forgan, had this to say. It's absolutely crucial that when we talk about something so hugely significant as the discovery of intelligent life beyond Earth, we do it clearly and carefully. Having Rio 2.0 allows us to rank a signal quickly in a way that the general public can easily understand, and helps us keep their trust in a world filled with fake news. Thanks, Jake. Uh, next up, we have Luke Hart interviewing Kunal Muli about EM counterparts to gravitational waves. Hello, I'm Luke Hart, and joining me today is Kunal Muli. 
who is a postdoc uh, or Hinsey fellow at Oxford University, and he's also been working at Caltech, particularly interested in, I believe, radio transients and X-ray transients, amongst That's other things. Amongst other things, lots of other things, I think. Mainly uh, expertise in radio frequencies, and like basically transients emit in a wide range of frequencies. So. Brilliant. So. Just for the purpose of our listeners, could you explain sort of what transient is? So the way I like to explain this is in astronomy, anything to do with our cosmos, things tend to evolve on timescales of millions and billions of years. So if you look at evolution of galaxies, if you look at formation of stars, but there are certain interesting events in our universe which evolve so rapidly on human timescales, in fact, anywhere between sub-second timescales to years time scales and these are really transformational events in the history of our universe so take for example a supernova which is the death of a star which is responsible for releasing so many heavy metals or heavy elements in our universe and in a way it enriches the chemistry in our universe and ultimately helps in further evolution and eventually also things like the formation of biological stuff so that's in short how one would explain a transient phenomenon, something which mm-hmm. lasts for a short time, but the impact in in the history uh, of our universe that it makes is, is really big. And could you sort of, in terms of your expertise, in terms of radio transients and X-ray transients, could you give us some examples of some sort of astrophysical objects or events that would give rise to these, or what they what they are, essentially? Right from objects that you find in our own galaxy, something small like our own sun gives off flares or coronal mass ejections and a wide variety of phenomena that lasts anywhere between seconds to days or so. In fact, just these coronal mass ejections are so powerful that they can impact satellites that are orbiting the Earth also. So right just from taking a, a small star up to big scales, like what is going on in extremely massive stars, things like supernova give off uh, different sort of transient radiation. And the big thing that I'm working on currently, which is a hot topic in astronomy, is the gravitational waves. Mm. So you would have either two extremely compact stars, so what happens at the end of a life of a massive star is that it leaves behind either a black hole or a neutron star. These are some of the most compact objects that we know of in our universe. And when you bring two such compact stars together, they in spiral and they merge, giving off gravitational waves. And along with that comes a lot of transient radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum. And my particular interest is in studying these phenomena or these transient objects with radio telescopes. Mm. So on that subject, actually, when we're talking about the gravitational waves and, and, and particularly the, the radiation signals that we see that come off those, I understand that a certain amount of time after the gravitational wave was you know, emitted, shall we say, the, uh, you get sort of signals in X-rays and, and radio, just as you said. So what sort of signals would you see in the X-ray coming from something like a neutron star merger? That's right. So it's an interesting question and has been field of research for over a few decades now. And these very interesting transient objects, transient events called short camera bursts were discovered in the late 1960s. 
these are X-ray and gamma-ray flashes seen in the sky and last for just uh, maybe a couple of seconds or even less and extremely energetic. And the idea that was built up over the past couple of decades or so on what these events might be was one of the explanations was that they could be the merger of binary neutron stars. And these are very special kind of bursts in the sense that these are those rare events that are viewed at a particular angle with respect to the orbiting of the binary neutron star system that eventually merged to give you this gamma-ray burst. And so these gamma-ray bursts give off highly relativistic outflows called jets. And these jets are very narrowly collimated, just like the jets that you would see in a jet engine, for example. Mm. So they are uh, very high energy and highly collimated. So only when you're observing a particular neutron star merger along this axis of the jet will you find something like a short gamma-ray burst. Now, what has been found with the recent discovery of this neutron star merger, famously referred to as GW170817, because it was discovered on the 17th of August, just this year by LIGO and Virgo, the interesting part was that it was an off-axis event. So it was not like a typical gamma-ray burst where you look on the eject axis, but Mm. it was slightly off-axis. And uh, the radiation there expected is you would expect to find a very rich variety of nucleosynthesis going on with the neutron-rich stuff that is lying around. And that gives specific signatures in the optical and infrared wavelengths. And what you see in the X-rays and radio wavelengths mainly is the impact of this relativistic stuff that is moving out away from the merger region and impacting the surrounding medium and you see a bright signal on time scales between days, weeks or even years eventually. So when you're looking at an on-axis event along the jet, Mm -hmm. you will see radiation that is evolving pretty rapidly, decaying on time scales of a week or so. But if you're viewing off-axis, you'll get a whole lot of different signatures in the electromagnetic spectrum evolving between timescales of days to years. Okay. And so from from the perspective of the sort of, sort of things that you, you look at and you research, was everything that you saw in that neutron star merger coming off in the, in the X-ray bands and the radio wave bands, was that everything that you were expecting to see or did you see any, any peculiarities, any sort of abnormalities that you hadn't accounted for when you were, when, when you were considering these simulations, if you will? There are a lot of interesting things and a lot of unexpected things, of course, that have come out of this discovery. And so with any event, the first of its kind, there are a lot of things that uh, astronomers learn out of it. And one of the things that was uh, found was in terms of a confirmation, if you will, of the simulations matching up with observations, was that neutron star mergers are indeed the sites of rich nucleosynthesis where you Mm. form a high fraction of neutron-rich elements in the universe. So much more than half of all the neutron-rich elements heavier than iron have been in our universe have been forged in such mergers. That's that's something that came out of it. First observational signature. Uh, The other thing which was kind of expected as well as unexpected in a sense is 
through optical spectroscopy especially is that just the speeds at which this neutron rich material is traveling mm -hmm. at uh, about 10% or 30% that of the speed of light wow. which is pretty fast so yeah, these fast. are these are uh, mildly relativistic outflows and the other thing that we learned was because there were really faint gamma rays seen from this merger event there is there are some hints that there was a jet ultra relativistic jet also so we are talking of speeds very very close to the speed of light here very narrowly collimated and of course these are indirect signatures that we are uh, trying to understand on how this off axis event actually showed up in the gamma rays but well, that was something really unexpected that the luminosity of this particular gamma ray flash was mm. was extremely low if you compare with other gamma ray bursts that have been seen so that's another sort of piece of the puzzle that still needs to be fit in the right place uh, there are a lot of theories and models out there to try and explain that and maybe one thing that i can say is for the first time we are seeing a definitive signature of really the interactions that are going taking place between the jet and this mildly relativistic neutron rich ejector that is lying around in something in the form of something called the cocoon mm. so what happens is that the jet goes and slams into the neutron rich debris that is lying behind from this merger and that results in a massive shock and sometimes mm -hmm. the jet can in fact get choked because of that material and oh, wow. there might be some signatures some some clues as to such a cocoon maybe forming in this merger afterglow wow and and as ha have have people like sort of modeled this before or is this something very sort of new thing with this event this is something that people have been astronomers especially working on the theory side have thought of this possibility mm. but in terms of looking at the data and trying to get empirical evidence this is the first of its kind and it's giving theorists a good chance to refine their models if you will and fine tune their parameters to see how this cocoon actually arises and mm. what parameters physical parameters might be involved in that happening okay and so i think we're you know we're very lucky to have you here talking to us at the the colloquium today and you've already alluded to the sort of work that you do and the and the connection that that has with gravitational waves could is there anything else that will sort of be featured in the colloquium that we sort of already haven't covered in this interview or have you pretty much done it in a nutshell well, one of the things that maybe we haven't covered is the future direction. So where right, is yeah. this field of gravitational waves moving over the next few years? And I think it's especially exciting time for us as young astronomers to be in this field because what we're having right now is the advanced LIGO and Virgo detectors undergoing upgrades and they'll become much more sensitive by next year or a couple of years and mm -hmm. start detecting many such events and that will really give us access to a whole new population of transient phenomena that we've just started uncovering and mm -hmm. I think that's going to be extremely exciting, a very highly impactful area of astronomy over the next several years. So that's brilliant. When you look at sort of the gravitational wave events, particularly the one that you're referring to, the combined LIGO and Virgo event with with all these electromagnetic sort of you know signals across the spectrum, 
one of the things that I think is really fantastic about that is that you have all these different telescopes all contributing to this one single event, adding their own little you know, piece of the puzzle. Do you know, I mean, just for the benefit of myself being very ignorant and also anybody else at home who doesn't necessarily know about this, do you know of any other sort of collaborations and big telescopes that have sort of thought, ah, this is definitely the sort of thing that we want to get involved with now. Do you know of any others that are now going to start picking this up, adding to the adding to the puzzle, as it were? Yeah, very much. The most exciting part of it is a lot of small optical telescopes around the globe are joining in. Brilliant. And I am in a process of getting together a coordinated network of radio telescopes all over the globe. Oh, wow. Uh, to try and get a organized effort in terms of understanding the radio afterglows from these mergers. So a lot of excitement is there in the community. Of course, uh, you very well know that the Nobel Prize in Physics this year was awarded to gravitational waves. So also mm-hmm. from that front, it's inspiring the younger generation to take up science and especially the science of gravitational waves mm-hmm. and the electromagnetic follow-up. Everyone is getting very much excited of this field and I'm sure in the coming years there will be many more facilities all over the globe which will be joining in in this massive global effort of uh, follow-up of merger signals. Fantastic. That sounds like that sounds very exciting, I think. So just to sort of almost wind wind it down, we've heard a lot about the the gravitational waves aspects and all the sort of different astrophysics that come off the back of this. And so the future of gravitational waves. What 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 is the future of, of Kunal? What, what what's your plans? What are you going to be working on? What what's the sort of what are you looking at thinking, Oh, I'd love to get involved with that? Yeah, it's a tricky question in some (laughs) sense because I'm at a stage where I'm transitioning from being a postdoc to maybe a permanent position as a professor at some place. In the next month or two, I'm going to be moving to the U.S. as a Jansky Fellow, so another postdoc, after which I would really like to Mm. get a professorship at a university. But at that point, I would really want to develop my expertise on this aspect of electromagnetic follow-up of Mm -hmm. gravitational wave sources. And the exciting thing there is to try and understand uh, about the physics of the merger and what is going on, in which environments are these mergers taking place, Mm -hmm. what kind of jets are launched with these mergers, Uh, What can we say about the neutron-rich material that keeps lying behind after the merger has taken place and the rich astrochemistry, the rich physics that can come out of it? I think that's the most exciting bit where I would like to focus on. Mm. So over the next few years, there are a lot of things to do (laughs) and there's a lot of competition as well in this field. So I think I would like to be on top of that. Brilliant. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Kanal. It's been brilliant and I am I'm sure that the colloquium will be fantastic later so thank you very much it's my pleasure thank you thanks for that Luke uh, now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else the odds and ends well so carry on Ben because you're first off what have you got go for first. us so I'm here to talk about SETI yay um, <laughs> aliens aliens I like aliens. this bit so I didn't know this until recently. I'm actually only halfway through reading this paper, um, so I've come well prepared as usual. <laughs> but there is a one of the problems at the moment is that, is that we have far too many news outlets trying to disseminate information and outdoing each other. And with regards to stuff like SETI, 
it's very easy to have things just blown out of all proportion and the stages of filtering that a piece of news goes through before it actually gets to the public can be many and like Chinese whispers things just get diluted and there is a scale or at least there was a scale called the Rio scale which is supposed to which SETI astronomers when they make a detection of some kind of signal are supposed to use to then disseminate to journalists to allow the journalist to make a decision of with regard to how to go about talking about this and this scale is called the Rio scale and it's basically it's a product of two numbers and it allows journalists to say how much should we actually should it be front page or should it be a little side issue and of course more recently more and more telescopes are doing SETI more and more astronomers are doing SETI and over the years this real scale kind of fell out of favour and people just kind of stopped using it and so a group of SETI astronomers led by Duncan Forgan this paper includes Jill Tata which many people will have heard of as well goes for the Rio 2.0 scale which is where they've revised this scale to try and re-establish it in the SETI community and try and encourage as many SETI astronomers to use it as possible. Now one of the things they wanted to do was source out things like terminology because if you say if a SETI astronomer says to a newspaper we've made a detection the word detection has quite a specific meaning astrophysically speaking but if you say that to a journalist who might not necessarily be scientifically literate they say well we found aliens they've made a detection and so things like terminology have been incorporated into this scale. Um, so in, in that particular example what is the difference then between saying we've made a detection if you're a SETI astronomer? I can't add. So a detection might be we've seen a signal which is not of any known astrophysical origin but is above some signal to noise threshold so we're convinced that it's a real signal and not an artifact perhaps of our instrumentation. It's either astrophysical or it's RFI or it has some source which we can't pin down right now. Okay, so it might um, be, say, FRBs or... It might be an FRB, or... it might be a sudden burst from uh, an airport radar, it, something like that. And so the real number is R, and it's composed of two numbers, Q and Delta. Q describes how culturally significant a detection is going to be, and Delta describes how probable it is that this detection is real. So, for example, Q has a higher value if the message is Earth-specific, i.e. directed towards us. It has a much lower value if it's just traces of astroengineering, such as a Dyson sphere or something like that. It has a higher value if the source of the signal was in the solar system, and a lower value if it's intergalactic. Because, if we, of course, if we discover ET in the solar system, then something's yeah. probably gone wrong with our models of astrobiology. Yeah, to totally. Or um, we've just, yeah, we've been looking in completely the wrong place. Maybe yeah. they're under Mars. Yeah, like, um, what was that, Doctor Who... Yeah. Oh, no, maybe the moon is really an egg. <laughs> maybe the moon isn't really an egg and it's yeah you mean the episode where water kept coming out of people's faces yeah the waters of Mars yeah, oh, the yeah. waters of Mars what was that one with the lizards that lived beneath the oh no they, they, live, on, they yeah. live on Earth blood they, and live the on, they, they live, they live on Earth. Earth we know now there's, you yeah. know there's traces of water ice on Mars could there be lizards living under the surface of Mars for example? you heard it here that, first folks suddenly <laughs> decide to stick a radio antenna through the surface and start transmitting messages towards the Earth that would get a high cue okay mm. yeah makes right. sense um, low delta, I'm going to guess? Depend, well, the delta describes how, how probable it is that the signal is real. So if we can measure, uh, or at least rule out other sources of that signal, such as RFI or some other kind of thing, then it would have a very high delta. And so R, the real factor, would be very high. And so newspapers can then come along and say, we'll put this on the front page because it's a real thing. And then they're taking that number directly from the astronomers instead of it going to, you know... 
Daily Mail, then BuzzFeed, and then God knows what else, until it's just not science anymore. <laughs> so does this delta mean real as in an astrophysical signal, like outside of the Earth, or does it mean real as in really an alien? As in it has a high probability of being from an extraterrestrial. Okay. Um, of course, there may, may well be astrophysical sources that we haven't thought of yet that mm-hmm. could do something like produce a satellite signal. Pulsars did that when we first discovered them. Yes. And so that number has fallen out of favour, as I say, and so they've decided to upgrade this to the Rio scale 2.0. Hooray. And so they're effectively giving SETI astronomers a questionnaire. So to calculate Q, you might say, what is the estimated distance to the source of a signal? If it's high, Q goes down. If it's low, Q goes up. I, you know, is it less than a light day? Is it tens of light days? Is it light years or whatever? What are the prospects for communication with the source of the signal? Again, if that's high, it gets a high Q. If it's low, it gets a low Q. And of course, things like, is this a beacon? Is it somebody just radiating out isotropically in all directions into space? Or is it targeted directly at us? Does it look like astro-engineering or does it look like a message? Does it contain any information? Is it encoded or is it literally just a flashing radio light in the sky? And something like that. And then Delta, let me just get this right because I said I only started reading this an hour ago. If it makes you feel any better, Ben, I'm currently still (laughs) reading the paper I'm about to talk about. Uh, I'm prepared. Good. I'm glad one of us is. Yeah, Um, but you still didn't know how to set up the recording equipment. And I'd forgotten how to set up the recording equipment. (laughs) I started and then just handed it to you. As we say, the podcast (laughs) making things up as we go along. And so to calculate Delta, they consider such things like, is there a significant uncertainty about whether the phenomenon occurred or occurs at all, i.e., is it definitely real? Did it happen in the telescope? Did it happen in the back end? Or is it definitely astrophysical? How amenable to study is the phenomenon, i.e., does it repeat? Or is it just a single signal like the wow signal, which we then can't go back and check? Is the dis- This is a good one. Is the discoverer of the phenomenon the same person or group that predicted that such a phenomenon would exist? <laughs> nice. And so it takes into account things like, you know, people are naturally wishful thinkers. Mm-hmm. And so it's just quite a cool little number. That, um, and actually, there, there are, for the old real scale, you can go and put in various numbers yourself as a website, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, where you can calculate the real factor for a given set of SETI observables, effectively. And so, you know, this term fake news has been bandied about a lot at the moment, and so I think this is a, a really great way to cut down on the rubbish that ends up getting through and end, ends up into the press and ends up adding to this sort of global scientific illiteracy that seems to be increasing throughout society. Do you um, think there's a way then that you could actually incorporate such a metric into any scientific? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, Discovery. So th- thing like I mean, take global warming for instance, like as like the one of the massive things that fake news is always being banded about like if we have a way to actually say look it's not just that 99 percent of scientists think this is correct or whatever the actual stat is the global warming is real just and while i have the airwaves <laughs> i don't know i um, guess i guess the problem with that is yeah. if, if these people are not inclined to believe it anyway are they going to be believing a metric that scientists have come up with to define how believable the thing is i don't know if they're going to believe us anymore on the metric I guess, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, what 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 the public, when they're reading this information, actually go on to think after they've read it is kind of entirely up to them. This is a way for journalists to be able to accurately depict how important a discovery is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important thing. You can, People come with their own ideas about the nature of the universe. I've had many conversations in pubs when I've 
tell people I'm an astronomer, the first thing they say is, oh, are there, are there such a things as aliens? And then we have that discussion. And almost immediately they go on to tell me their theory of the universe. You know, they've, they've thought about it for 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a good way of just having journalists, and I hope they will look for this number whenever they come across a, a scientific paper that's describing a SETI detection, that they will actually be able to look for this number in that paper and make a, a, an appropriate presentation of this science. So obviously that then depends on the scientific community themselves going, actually, yes, this is a good idea. Yeah. And I mean, part of the problem of scientific communication, one of the major ones is science has this... I think science has a very pompous way of communicating itself in the literature and things, like the, the way that scientific literature has to be written. There are tools for this, and I, yeah. I'll try and find the link because I can't remember the name of it, but there's a, a website where you can put in an abstract for the public of your paper. So mm. say you publish mm. a paper, you can then link the paper and an abstract that you've written that's in less pompous scientific language for the public to be able to access. I can't, as I said, I can't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but there are, and, and again, as you say, it, that relies on the scientist doing this. Yeah. But, I mean, there's only so much we can do. Of course, this, this comes back to what you said, is that, you know, can this be applied to a wider variety of science? Yeah. The nice thing about social media now is that you most a lot of the time you can actually directly talk to the scientist. Yes. And some people, when they publish a paper, will go and do a, a thread on Twitter or something describing it in in real terms, um, Emily Petroff does this a lot for yeah. Fast Radio Burst Papers. Yes, yeah, she did one today or yesterday. Oh, I think. yeah, I'll be oh, talking yes. about it, don't worry. Oh, <laughs> yes, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I hope that this new Rio scale will become sort of disseminated into the literature and into, into not, just, you know, not just the scientific literature, which is scientific literature is written in a way that is completely inaccessible to the public. It's, it's linguistically inaccessible and often it's financially inaccessible yeah. as well, which is, you know, this paper I'm reading now isn't available to the public. Is it on archive? No. Is, that, is archive even available to people that are outside of a university behavior? Yes. yes. Okay. But if I put the link to this paper, if I put the link to this PDF in the show notes, I'm yeah. breaking copyright law, so all I can do is link to the abstract, which isn't fair because, you know, if there are any UK astronomers on this, then the UK taxpayer has paid for this research, so it should yeah. be open. I, yeah. Um, I mean, we, yeah, we have an excellent open science movement here at Manchester, mm. and, or in JBCA at least. Rachel Ainsworth, who presents occasionally, is heading that. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Um, yes, that was really interesting, Ben. Thank you. Speaking of Emily Petrov, though, and Chime, let's go to Laura, um, who has something to chime in on. <laughs> nice. Oh, <dear>. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sat on that for about five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to talk about sort of my, well, one of my fields of research, uh, fast radio bursts or FRBs. So for a little bit of background, I think I talked about it a couple of months ago when I presented, but a fast radio burst is a really short, really bright flash of radio light that usually just goes off once and then it's gone. So when I say short, I mean sort of on millisecond time scales, so that's a couple of a thousandth of a second. Pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. And they're really bright, so brighter than objects that we see that we know from uh, from inside our our own galaxy. And we know that they come from far away, that they come from outside of our, our galaxy, but we don't know too much else. So there's currently, I think it must be now 37 officially. You're looking at me like I'll know. 
Yeah, <laughs> 37. I'm going to say 37. You're the expert in the room. <laughs> Just make it up. You can you can check it out on frbcat.org, which is uh, a website run by Emily Petros. But only one of them repeats. So the rest of them, they go flash and then they're gone. So that's why we can't really collect any more information about them because you can't go back and point your telescope at them because they've gone off, they've lasted a couple of milliseconds and then that's it. But one does repeat. Uh, so of these FRBs, most have been detected by the Parkes radio telescope in Australia, a few from the Utmost telescope, which is the Malongolo radio telescope, also in Australia, um, one by the Green Bank telescope, and one by Arecibo. And none by Meerkat. Meerkat's not online yet, that's not fair. <laughs> so the, the thing about all these FRBs is almost all of them... That was a, sorry, that was a low. I know, that was really, really cheap. <laughs> I don't know I don't know if we get deck to include that. <laughs> Way hard. <laughs> well, sorry, it's just because you've got this, your white little scoreboard whiteboard yeah. in your office yeah. that but, amuses me. So the, the trick is with these FRBs, though, that most of them have been detected in a very uh, small range of frequencies, so uh, one gigahertz to around one and a half gigahertz, and that's just the nature of the telescopes that are observing them. The repeater, that one repeating FRB out of the 37, has been detected up to eight gigahertz, and there's been one, that one FRB detected by the Green Bank Telescope was detected down to 700 megahertz, but that's where the telescope's observing band cut off, so it wasn't the FRB stopped at 700 megahertz, it's that the telescope itself couldn't observe lower than that. But the other day, about a week ago, a chime which is the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment in Canada, detected their first FRB ever, uh, which is very exciting. So CHIME is a really interesting telescope. We normally think of uh, radio telescopes as big dishes or multiple smaller dishes, or even if you have heard of the low-frequency array in the Netherlands, lots of little tiny antennas that look like spiders or Christmas trees or washing lines or that sort of thing. Um, CHIME is a little bit different again, so it's more like the Molongolo telescope. It's actually four big uh, half cylinders, so it looks like four half, half pipes made out of mesh right next to each other, um, oriented north-south, so they're 20 by 100 metre cylindrical reflectors, so that means that they can see a large chunk of the sky all in one shot. So that's, it's 400 metres long? No, so they're next to each other. Yeah, but it's, it's, so it's, it's four 100 metre... Yes. Oh. So they're side by side. Oh, they're side by side. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yes. <laughs> so is so that 400 metres in total or 400 metres each? It's 100 metres each. 100 metres each. 100 metres each. But yeah. they're, they're, they're arranged to each other. So it's, so it's 80 metres wide. Yeah. Right. And well, 100 metres long. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you can look like it up online. Oh well, yeah. You can you can look it up <laughs> online if you want to see a picture. If this is this is confusing you, like it has Josh and Ben, you can look I, up time. I did a talk on time in Southampton a few years ago. I can't remember a thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of it until yesterday. <laughs> so you can see 200 square degrees on the sky in real time. So the moon is about half a degree. So if you think about that, that's Quite, it's not the whole sky, but it's a large chunk of the sky. Is it about half the sky? No. No, no, no. no, no. I've done my it's, math it's very horrifically wrong math. Percentage-wise, it's not much of the, the full sky, but for a telescope, it's pretty good. I mean, mm. but the interesting thing about time is that it, it's observing. So I talked about the Green Bank Telescope, which sees down to 700 megahertz. Chime sees between 400 to 800 megahertz. So that means that any FRBs detected in the CHIME telescope are the lowest frequency ones pretty much straight away. And based on all the other FRBs, so CHIME only recently, well, only 
I think for about a week has been observing, has been looking for FRBs and they've already seen apparently a few. So this one FRB, FRB 180725A, which already tells you something, the fact that they have to stick an A on the end of the date <laughs> tells you that maybe they detected more than one on that day. So this is all an astronomer's telegram. So you can actually look up the astronomer's telegram and I'll make sure I include that in the show notes. For free. Yeah, for free. These ones are definitely free. So it was de- it was detected on the 25th of July, so a week or so ago. And this FRB is well outside of our own galaxy. So it has what we call a dispersion measure of 716.6 parsecs per cubic centimetre. So that's just a measure of how many free electrons the light passed through as it uh, came towards us. And the measure, that so was 716.6, and what we expect just from our own galaxy is around 70. So that means that it passed through a heck of a lot more stuff than just is inside our own galaxy. It lasted for two milliseconds uh, and had a very high signal to noise, and it was actually detected in two beams of time. So that's kind of just extra nice information. And it was detected down to frequencies as low as 580 megahertz. So a reminder that the, the previous lowest was 700 megahertz. So this tells us a lot about FRBs because it wasn't clear before whether they kind of just cut off at a certain frequency or if they kept going, but they've never really been detected by LOFAR, which goes down to a couple of hundred megahertz. So time is expected to detect at least one and up to 20 per day. Oh, wow. So Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a heck of a lot. So depending on what they see, whether they see 1 or 20 or somewhere in between per day and what frequency structure it has in that sort of lower chunk of the frequency spectrum, that's going to tell us a heck of a lot about FRBs. Um, have all of the FRBs that have been found so far, have they been found to have like a fairly uniform frequency structure? So no. So every FRB looks really weird to us in frequency. So they're sort of the, the closest comparison, I guess, of astronomical objects that we know of now that also have short bursts of radio light, our pulsars and things like rotating radio transients and magnetars. But those have, you know, pretty uniform frequency structure with just a slope in frequency. But FRBs kind of look stripey or blobby or really strange in frequency. So they they all look different as well? Yes, every single one looks different. And even the repeater, so the one that repeats, looks different every every burst. Yes. You've got your work cut out. Yeah, yeah. So I guess this. So the 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 nice thing about time is that it's looking at a large chunk of the sky. It's looking all the time. So it should detect heaps of FRBs and sort of probe this chunk of frequency that we haven't been able to look at before. And they actually add an extra little paragraph at the end of this ATAL, this astronomer's telegram, that says that they have detected other ones already. So this is just the one that they've told us about. And these other ones have been detected down to frequencies as low as 400 megahertz. So that's really interesting for modeling these things and for working out what they could be. So really, it tells us a lot. And yeah, we, we're very excited to see what else Chime comes up with. Um, if you want to have a, see a nice little Twitter summary, Emily Petrov has done a little nice little Twitter summary of, of what this was. But as I said, you can actually look at the Astronomer's Telegram yourself as well because it's open access science twitter is amazing it is yes <laughs> it is i I've, I've only recently just got on it and it's fantastic yep there's so many useful things. I, I think all the radio astronomers that i um follow on twitter just had a retweeted or tweeted or yeah. something about this time frb because it's, it's really exciting news for us as frb astronomers 
And as I said, we're, we're excited to see whether they see one a day or 10 a day or 20 a day or something like that. That really tells us a lot about which models that we've already got. So we already have made models based on what we've seen. And maybe it'll cut some of those out or it'll say some of those are looking good. It tells us a lot. And then when Meerkat comes online, Josh, <laughs> when Meerkat comes online, that'll also add extra information about these as well. Because the thing about Chime, because it's got these weird half-pipe te- uh, shaped telescopes, yeah, um, like big gutters. Yeah, exactly. It can't localise anything. So it can yeah. only say within half a degree, so again about the same size as the moon, um, where these things are coming from. Which is comparatively quite a big patch of sky if you're trying to nail something down at high redshift. Yes, yes. you can imagine how many stars we can see in one yeah. size of the moon, imagine how many galaxies there could be inside that area. So the time experiment for FRBs is really great for finding heaps of these things but not particularly for finding really specific information about each one. Mm. So it's kind of adding to the sample size so we can do statistics and things, but it, it won't necessarily give us really, really specific information about each one, but it's a really nice addition to all the other information that we have. Have they looked at doing anything with a, a telescope that is more likely to be able to localise them? So it's similar, I guess, to Meertrap and Meerlicht um, and Meerkat and whatever your acronyms are, <laughs> um, like, where, where you've got, like, I mean, you have this commensal survey always mm-hmm. on, but, like, would there would there be any scientific use, I guess, to teaming Chime, which apparently is more sensitive and will pick up more of them, with another more precise array that maybe wouldn't necessarily be sensitive enough to pick it up on its own um, when you use trying to say, this is here, let's well, take the data? Chime isn't necessarily actually more sensitive. Um, okay. So Chime has the, the major advantage of Chime is that it has this huge field of view. So Chime is actually, as the name suggests, the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity mm-hmm. Mapping Experiment is more interested in, uh, so it was originally built, I shouldn't say more interested, originally built for um, H1 mapping experiments. So it has a lot of the characteristics that they need for that particular type of experiment. But the really nice thing is with the large field of view, and it's also a, a scanning telescope, so you can't point it. It's just looking it up oh, the so whole time. It's, it's a drift scan. Yeah, it's a drift scan. The, the sky goes past the telescope, and that's the bit that it looks at. So for, for pulsars, that's really nice because it sees, I think, all the pulsars every day for at least 10 minutes or something like that. For, I think something like up to 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah so um, I think the maximum, if it goes right over the top, you the get the closer longer. they are to the equator, the less time a pulsar will spend in chimes beam. Yeah. And so it's, it's really good for pulsars, actually, because it will time between three and 500 pulsars every day, which is unheard of previously in yes. pulsar astronomy. Um, so you can use that to really like nail pulsar timing. You can get really good pulsar yeah. timing yeah. with it. Really um, good and timing. if anything interesting happens, maybe similar with, with FRBs, mm-hmm. you could maybe slave to other telescopes. Yeah. The problem, I think, with FRBs is you need an afterglow. Yeah, well, which we don't know that we have. Um, and I guess the problem is as well that it's all well and good to have another telescope looking at the same spot as time, but which spot? Because Chime has such yeah. a huge field of view. Every other telescope, except for LOFAR, um, has a smaller field of view. Mm. So saying that you'd have, say, a, a telescope with the field yeah. of view of the level pointing in the same direction, that doesn't help yeah. at all. Fair enough. Because it just has to be happen to be looking in the same spot, and then you may as well not have it linked to Chime anyway, because yeah. then it would protect it itself. Yeah, fair enough. I guess so, slaving LOFAR to Chime wouldn't work, because they're at different sides of the planet. Yes, <laughs> yes. You, you well, well the Netherlands. You could rotate the Netherlands. Like about an axis. Get a JCB. Yeah. Well, the Westerbork um, Synthesis Radio Telescope in the Netherlands, which recently had the Apatif upgrade, um, will be looking for FRBs. They're not 
there yet. They're not doing it yet, mm. but they're linked because they're both in the Netherlands and they're both buster telescopes. They will be linked together. And because LOFAR is so low frequency, they'll see it in Westerbork and then have a few seconds to look with LOFAR. But as I said, LOFAR looks at the whole half of the sky above it at all times, and it's never detected in FRB. It's actually detected supposedly one transient, but that's about it, not including pulsars and RATs and magnetars and those sort of things. So what's the explanation for that? Nobody knows. So I guess that's just where it's interesting that this, these frequencies that we see them for sure, mm. that 1.4 gigahertz, we kind of need that bridge in between because we see them at 1.4 gigahertz, but then we don't see them below about 300. So what's going on in between? Yeah, so, so whether we'll see anything at lower frequencies. MWA has also been um, linked to ASCAP and hasn't seen anything. Mm. So uh, the ASCAP telescope and MWA are both in Australia. So um, this linking higher frequencies to lower frequencies is a nice idea, but so far has not come to anything. Um, but then Meerkat, as you say, Meerkat will come online and... Josh was confused that I'm in the mere trap group, <laughs> the more transients and pulsars group using the Meerkat telescope. I know exactly what you're in. I'm just <laughs> winding you up, and it's working. Um, and the mere licked telescope is linked to Meerkat, and that's an optical telescope, so um, that will open up interesting opportunities too. So there's a lot of things still yet to be discovered about FRBs, but um, having Chime online now and finding FRBs already is a really exciting thing for the field. It's sort of a, a, just one of those gaps now is being filled. Uh, and hopefully we'll soon see some even cooler results and maybe some cool theories coming out of what, what they see. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. Well, both of you have asked important questions. You've spoken about, like, interesting things. However, I'm going to ask the most important question that has ever been asked on the Jodcast. Supposing, okay, sir. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm so ready to be more <laughs> exciting than FRBs and SETI. <laughs> Supposing that the entire Earth was instantaneously replaced by an equal volume of closely packed but uncompressed blueberries, what would happen from the perspective of a person on the surface? This is a. Sorry, just, I'm still passing that question. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you repeat that slower? <laughs> so, it's been a long day yeah. <laughs> Supposing that the entire Earth yeah. Was instantaneously replaced With an equal volume of closely packed But uncompressed blueberries Okay. What would happen from the perspective Of a person on the surface So we're just talking about volume not mass of blueberries We're just, just talking about just volume, volume of Just volume so they are completely perfectly Closely packed but they're not squashed They're non-compressed at this point Okay so they're not tessellating either because they're little circles right? Well, Yeah so they're little circles but they tessellate well, well, like, well, yeah, like, so, yeah, no, yeah, they're, 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 <laughs> they're kicking off. They're, they're, yeah, no, sorry. They're, they're also they're roughly spheroid, but <laughs> they're not circles. Come on, um, <laughs> but yeah, they are like sort of. I don't know if you stacked a load of golf balls, type thing. Okay, um, blueberries. I'm, I'm excited to hear the specific reason why they chose blueberries, and has this been published? This is this is an actual paper. Um, on archive, uh, okay. it's written by. Has it been submitted to any? I I don't think so. I think this is just a here. Let's have a look at this. Uh, right. um, Why not? I guess. So this is this is a paper by Anders Sandberg from the University of Oxford, and it's entitled "Blueberry Earth." It's so yeah. It's it's the the original question is asked on Physics Stack Exchange uh, by oh, the okay, user that makes more sense. by the user Billy Bodega. So there we go. There's some credits. At least it wasn't Reddit. Yeah, it's not Reddit. It's Physics Stack Exchange. Mm -hmm. 
This sounds like something the author of XKCD. Yeah, so mm-hmm. yeah, I like it, it. Feels very what if. Yeah. And yeah, I like this paper is fantastic. It it just he just goes on to properly dissect it by with actual physics. Well, I mean, um, it's interesting, right? Because the, the Earth mm. is not a uni- It does not have a uniform density profile, whereas I guess an Earth made of blueberries would. Does initially? Yeah, I mean that is true. This is this this is where this is where the paper goes. It takes the it, it looks at the time evolution of it um, and looks at the different kind of physical blueberry collapse. Do they use yeah. supercomputer for this? Because I don't know who's paying for this. I mean, I I, I think um, so. A lot of this is just is just been done like this, this is a basic physics equation. Let's oh yeah, so that's what happens. The yeah. sort of, um, but the uh, so what happens? Yeah, so. Yeah. Replace the Earth with blueberries. So the the paper is kind of split into different things. The first one is looking at the initial state of it, and I think the sun the sun the sun initially yells violet. You're turning violet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it so does. Um, and but, then <laughs> yeah, and and then um, so initially um, the density of blueberries is a, about thirteen percent of the Earth's density. So he has various figures. So that's the overall density, not a single blueberry. Yes, yeah, so the, the yeah, the the overall density. So mm-hmm. he assumes that the density row berries. Um, <laughs> so the density of blueberries is seven hundred kilograms per meter cubed, which is a, appears to be reasonable. So it's a bit less than water. Did he buy a whole blueberries? Blueberries, blueberries float, and yeah, someone else has done some estimates that it's he's quoted. The density of Saturn, actually. Yeah, that's a really good fact. <laughs> I didn't um, know that. <laughs> So my um like when I started reading this and the first paragraph of this section just was like note that these are the big thick skinned high bush blueberries vaccinium corymbosum corymbosum rather than the small wild thin skinned blueberries uh, which are more commonly known as bilberries um, so these are blueberries rather than bilberries um, which is an important distinction to make I feel yeah so um, that affects the outcome yeah so that that does affect the outcome. The sentence, blueberry pulp has a density similar to water, features here. Uh, the difference, basically, between whole berries and crushed berries mm-hmm. is the air between the berries. If the berries were hexagonally close-packed spheres of water density, the density would be about 740 kilograms per meter cubed, while the more likely random packing, so we're assuming that they've just appeared unstructured, mm-hmm. um, the more likely random packing would be about 634 kilograms per meter cubed, so significantly less dense. Mm-hmm. In the following, we will ignore the mass of the air compared to the mass of the berries, which I feel <laughs> is an important... That's just a rule for life. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I feel that is an important caveat to add to anything. So, instantaneously turning Earth into blueberries will reduce its mass to 0.1274 of what it was. Gravity will become correspondingly weaker and will yes, end up being... Be bad. Yeah, well, it will be about 1.25 metres per second squared his units are wrong do they take into account how the rotation of the earth would affect the blueberries hold hold <laughs> that thought <laughs> so section three coalescence mm-hmm. um that's ominous when we're talking about i know okay. blueberries are not particularly sturdy this is a fact that is asserted with no citation which, well i um, mean we could all try throwing blueberries at josh we could and we could tell you how structure i quite like them. blueberries so i'm actually okay with this um, Should we pause this and go to the shop? Yeah. <laughs> he basically looks at how a rough, like, what is the compressive strength of a blueberry? There is no literature on this, 
for some unknown reason. Well, there is now. Um, yeah, there is now. So a rough estimate is possible. Stacking a sugar cube, a one gram sugar cube, on a berry will not break it. While a milk carton, which weighs what, a kilogram, will. That's a large error bar. Yeah. So 100 grams has a decent but not certain chance of okay. breaking a berry. Okay. Indeed, this is not so far off the slightly higher estimates in another of like sort of 178 to 219 grams from the one source that I think you vaguely found. That's, that's a better error bar. Yeah. So if we assume the blueberry area to be one square centimetre, the breaking pressure... That's a small blueberry. Yeah. Well, continue. Sorry, continue. Is, is it square centimetre? About right. Yeah, it's about right. Yeah, Order of magnitude, man. Maybe in Australia the blueberries are mutant blueberries and they're bigger. Well, no, I feel like a square centimetre is not enough. Yeah, but no, like fine, but like to order of magnitude, yeah, it's, it's going to be it's one square centimetre or ten square centimetre. A ten square centimetre blueberry is an apple-sized object, right? Yeah, okay. Like that, that's, that's comically, like, that's a plum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll go with yeah. one square centimetre. Yeah, anyway, so he, he uses this to work out like how deep down do you have to go before you get the... Um, the blueberries oh, to crush. Level, yeah. What is the smushing level? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the, the precision on these numbers is crazy. It's 11.4198 metres. So, 11.5 metres deep. That's not very far considering how big the Earth is. No, it's not very far considering how big the Earth is. <laughs> but like, if you were still on the surface, you'd be able to bury, like, move down 11 metres and then you'd just have pulpy blueberries. Well, you wouldn't, though, because the gravity issue... You're some floating off into space. Uh, <laughs> um, no, there is... Atmospheres still exist. Um, okay, that's good. So, after all of this... <laughs> yeah, after, after all of this, how does the... Because obviously this is compressing, so the Earth mm-hmm. is now getting smaller. Uh, so at the end of this, you end up with a planet that is 0.89 times smaller in radius. Um, so it's shrunk, but not... Not as much as Not as much as you would have thought. No. Packing fraction apparently is relatively high. Um, okay. And the densities of blueberry versus crushed blueberry is roughly similar. Interesting. The freefall time scale for the planet, um, so this is the amount of time it would take the entire planet to c- collapse under its own gravity if there was nothing else happening. It's about 42 minutes. So, there we go. That was the question that Douglas Adams was actually asking. <laughs> <laughs> what is the freefall time scale in minutes for a blueberry Earth? Assuming no radiation assuming pressure, no radiation pressure <laughs> or any other forces. It's 42. I um, want to know what size sphere of blueberries you would need to have for it to collapse to such earth. that you had carbon burning <laughs> and then you, had, <laughs> then you had a blueberry star. I think that this is something we can work out. <laughs> Ben's next paper. <laughs> <laughs> I think, does it, I set you both a challenge, and me as well, in that in our, all of our next papers, we have to find a way to cite this paper. I, yes. yes. I, that's going to be really difficult. Be like, FRBs <laughs> might be blueberry Well, no, like, I mean, so the, the, the final sentence of this abstract is, the result is not entirely dissimilar to a small ocean world exoplanet. So, well, I actually have, <laughs> I have a, a relatively non-stretch to cite this. Um, Maybe if I'm talking about stellar flares, I could talk about what would happen if there was a blueberry Earth next to a star that had stellar flares. 
I feel like that I could write an extra, you know, what if it was a, you know, an extremely strongly magnetised set of blueberries. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so <laughs> this is a very useful world analogy that yeah. will make everyone understand physical life. <laughs> yeah. More. <laughs> so we've let our blueberries crush. Yeah. Um, we now have a sort of pulp in the centre and some. Um, not very long. It didn't take very long. Yeah. Um, but what happens to all of the air? Because the blueberries yeah. originally were kind of. There was space between them, and that was filled by air. Mm-hmm. They are now pulp. That air's gone somewhere, right? Is there an atmosphere? So the gravity on the pulp surface is 1.5 metres per second squared, which is coincidentally almost exactly lunar gravity. Um, so you wouldn't be floating off um, completely. You, you could just, still play golf. Yeah, you could, you could play golf very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically this... Yeah, he talks about um, the scale height of the atmosphere, so like, how far do you have to travel before stuff changes significantly? And it goes to the scale height increases by about 6.2, a factor of 6.2, so it's about 53 kilometres. And basically this leads to all clouds and cloud bases and things becoming 6.2 times deeper. Um, they are like Everything is much, much bigger. And the atmosphere itself extends, for, it puffs up due to the heating um, that we will come on to. Um, <laughs> so the sort of final result of the atmosphere, when he's finished talking about it, is somewhat similar to Titan, um, right. in that it's it's a smallish body with a thick cloud-filled atmosphere. Uh, what colour do you reckon the sky is? There is an obvious answer, and there is a correct answer. For those of us who are not in the room, Ben and I both just looked at each other because we knew this was a trap. I'm going to say transparent. You are both wrong. It's blue. Um, (laughs) I said there's a correct answer and an obvious answer. They just happen to be the same. Um, No, the obvious answer was purple. Yeah, um, it's just really scattered to Mm, blue. Like normal. Like normal. But the atmosphere is actually is becomes optically thick, uh, meaning that the ground light level is only about four percent that of Earth. Mm, um, that's so, not so good for driving and stuff. I mean, I feel like a blueberry surface is quite bad for driving as well. Sure. <laughs> Another um, thing that is experimentally like possible, we could try driving over a whole lot of blueberries, like eleven meters of blueberries, to see. Sure. What happens? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not the one going to be the one hiring and, that car guy. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's 11 meters of blueberries, and then what? Like another 6,000 kilometers of, of squash of squashed blueberries. Yeah. But these blueberries heat up. The separation into pulp and air has big consequences. Uh, enormous amounts of air will be pushing out from the pulp as bubbles and jets, producing spectacular geysers. So more like, is it Titan the one that? Has yeah. It? So it's, yeah. It's, it's yeah. So becoming Titan, but made of blueberries. Yeah, the so Titan's the, Titan. the one with a really thick atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Bellibus is the, the guy one. one. Stuff, yeah. So it's sort of a weird blueberry-based combination of the two of them. Mm-hmm. Even more dramatic is the heating. So as we're compressed... Jam. Jam. Yes, you have seen where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very carefully not using that word up until now. Um, Sorry. The, uh, <laughs> punchline ruined. Yeah, so... Punchline um, ruined. <laughs> you get... Um, because, you, because you've compressed the whole planet you release that gravitational energy as heat. Um, he works it out. If you ignore the mass of the air, since it's small, and just want an order of magnitude estimate, the compression of the berry mass gives an output energy of 4.58 times 10 to the 29 joules. That's a lot. This is the an- energy output of the sun in 20 minutes. 
So, so I guess the upshot of this is we're all dead. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, we don't get to enjoy the jam. We're just dead. Yeah, basically, core of the the pulp core starts to boil and turns into jam. Uh, <laughs> but like not the nice kind, I guess. It probably turns into the jam that you boil it too much. Yeah. And it's like glue. Um, the um, but this also yeah. starts to boil off some of the water, which leads to steam, which then helps to boil stuff because it can't quite escape. So, so I guess there is some kind of radiation pressure. Yeah. There Could you I go. also ask <laughs> <laughs> if these blueberries are non-magnetized? Yes. Does the solar wind remove the atmosphere anyway? Oh damn! So hold that thought as well because every question has been answered I love this paper so much wow, I really hope they get this published because um, I mean they've done some impressive yeah work. like I mean it's, it's yeah it's it's a really it's like an eight page answer to a one sentence question yeah. it's great we've got to find a journal that will accept this but the, yeah this, this section contains my favourite sentence that I have ever read in a scientific paper if you can call this yeah, scientific uh, which is the result is that the blueberry earth will turn into a roaring ocean of boiling jam, with the geysers of released air and steam likely ejecting at least a few berries into orbit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, glad that this is an open access paper, because I feel like everybody should go Oh, I, I, I am going to link this. Do not worry. <laughs> if you are not listening through the website, like go to our website. If we have any artists, there. I would love to see any, an artist's impression of this. Oh, that yes. would be amazing. Let's, let's have a Blueberry Earth drawing competition. <laughs> I will submit my own if someone else at least draws it's a great one. name for a music festival. Blueberry Earth. Yeah. It's a great name for a band. Yeah. yeah. I know who I'm going to Blue Dot House next year. <laughs> <laughs> a blueberry? <laughs> yep. So the escape velocity is 4.23 me- uh, 4.23 kilometres a second. Not metres a second, as I just said. Um, What's the escape velocity of, of Earth? Uh, it's like... As it is now. 16, 11? Yeah. Yeah, I get confused. The non-blueberry. The moon is sort of similar to that? Well, yeah, so I mean, the surface yeah, gravity of this is, yeah. is comparable yeah, okay, to the moon. Yeah, other effects. Um, like we, the coalescence speeds up rotation. Um, yeah, that makes so sense. So angular momentum. So your day goes from originally 24 hours when you initially flick the blueberry switch, and then it compresses and starts to spin up. Not if you have that switch, don't don't flick it. Or at least like flick it reversibly. <laughs> um, the do try and do that thing that everyone's done with their lights at home, where you try and balance it exactly between on and off. Or just don't touch it. <laughs> Is that just me? No. No, it's not just me. No. <laughs> dimmer uh, switches were made for people like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you've got a blueberry dimmer switch. Now, that's an interesting... Oh, if you turn half, like, part of the Earth into But which part does it? Which part turns the blueberries first? No, well, you'd have to start with the, the um, crust, right? Because if you started with the core, then that would all go to hell. I feel like... Blueberry Earth might be hell anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, unless you love jam so much you want to be boiled to death in it. Yeah. Anyway, the day becomes uh, 18.92 hours. So it's... On the surface. On the surface. Well, and... If it's underneath. a fluid, it'll be, it'll be differential rotation, surely. Oh, ooh, oh yeah, now that... Reconnection? That doesn't... Um, that is not discussed. We have found a flaw <laughs> to... Do we uh, get blueberry glitches? <laughs> 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 Now that, like that's a type of biscuit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so is there a magnetic field discussion? Yes. Yeah. yeah, the next sentence is the magnetic field would disappear. Yeah. Blueberries are non-magnetised um, mm. and there is no longer any iron core to power it. This in turn removes the magnetosphere, making high-energy solar and cosmic particles free to hit the outer atmosphere. 
this will in turn lead to the dissociation of molecules and in particular the escape of hydrogen from any water vapor up there. This process is likely to lead, likely, not certain, likely to lead to the gradual drying of the planet as the water disappears unless there's a cold trap in the stratosphere to hold it down, though it may be slow enough to not matter over the remaining main sequence lifespan of the sun. <laughs> I, yeah, um, and then the sort of final, the the, the final point that they, they actually makes is um, another effect is the orbit of the moon. Uh, now the two bodies have about equal mass. Um, ah, interesting. So is the moon bound to the blueberry Earth? Or do they just start? Well, it'd lose its tidal lock, wouldn't it? Yeah. So um, had it, <laughs> a kilogram of lunar material has potential energy of. 1.3 times 10 to the 5 joules. Well, the kinetic energy of it is 5.23 times 10 to the 5 joules, so it has enough energy to escape. Right. But if it remained, uh, the jam ocean would have made a... T <laughs> this, this is verbatim from the paper. Had it remained, the jam ocean would have made an excellent tidal dissipation mechanism that would have slowed down rotation and moved Blueberry Earth towards tidal lock with the moon much earlier than the 50 wow. billion years it would have otherwise taken. Basically, I think you've won the job cast. I don't think you've won the And these people have won science. A friend of mine, <laughs> a, a, a chemist friend of mine sent me this. Just She just sent me this paper and was like, I saw the word exoplanet in it and thought you might like it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, the final state, the, the, in summary, um, a person standing on the Earth's surface of the Earth when it turns into blueberries, the first effect would be a drastic reduction of gravity. Standing on the blueberries might be possible in theory, except that almost immediately they begin to compress rapidly and air starts rushing everywhere. The effect is basically the worst earthquake ever. Um, <laughs> and keeps on going until everything has fallen 715 kilometres. While this is going on, everything heats up drastically until the entire environment is boiling jam and steam. <laughs> The end result is a steam atmosphere covering an ocean of jam on top of warm blueberry granite. The final state of blueberry earth is somewhat similar to oceanic planets, though far lighter than any observed so far. And with yeah. that, questions? <laughs> I feel like we covered most of our questions along the way. Yeah. That's amazing. What? <laughs> ha, ha, where? So you said Oxford. Yeah. Okay, so we could collaborate with these people just mm. generally in life. You know, if I have to leave academia for any reason and become a real person, I'm going to spend my life writing this type of paper. Yeah, well, you could. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing is that um, there, there is a future work suggestion um, <laughs> oh. on the end of this well, paper. Well, there are many different um, fruits and vegetables you could choose. Well, <laughs> well, no, there's that, but there's also, there are still many things to explore. What is the likely chemistry of the blueberry world? On one hand, blueberries are full of antioxidants, but on the other, there's also significant amounts of oxidizable compounds such as sugars and an extensive and hot atmosphere. Most likely there will be a massive oxidation process, perhaps fermenting the sugars. So does this now become some sort of blueberry liqueur planet? Which Laura's face just seems to light up at the concept of. Yeah. <laughs> Can you get, I quite fancy some blueberry liqueur. Yeah, is that a real thing? I'm sure it is. I feel like we should call it blueberry earth and start manufacturing it. I mean, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. There's a, there's a Jodcast spare. business venture. <laughs> <laughs> when, the, when, when the Jodcast studio is out is out of use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just going to start bringing in barrels of blueberries to ferment. Yeah. Will there remain a cold trap in the stratosphere preventing water from being dissociated in the ionosphere, or will it gradually dry out? Could extremophile bacteria survive and bootstrap an ecosystem? 
Could you get actual life remaining on this blueberry planet? We don't know. I mean, and this what is the work. Live forever, right? They're pretty amazing. Yeah, this is the work that we need to do. I yeah. I think we might have to get some like biologists and chemists on board, but sure. I mean, I, the chemist sent me this. Yeah, true. I'm sure true. she will be more than happy to join in with this complete farce of science. It's not a farce of science. It's, I, it's interesting, cool stuff that, I mean, is interesting to consider. I guess. We just spent a while on it, so yeah. I feel like... Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that is um, my favourite paper that I have ever read. My favourite paper that I've never read. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... If any of you are wanting to have a look out for blueberry planets or FRBs or aliens, you can, well, Ian Morrison might have some uh, information for you on where to look. So here's Ian with this month's night sky. The night sky for August 2018. Let's first look at what we can see with our eyes looking up at the heavens. As it gets darker, setting towards the west, is the bright star Arcturus in Bootes. And then to the south and fairly high up, we have that lovely region of the sky with the constellations Aquila, Lyra and Cygnus. Their bright stars Altair, Vega and Denub make up what is called the Summer Triangle. And one quick thing, if you start from Altair, that's the lowest of the three, and work about a third of the way up towards Vega, up on the right. It's actually a dark part of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, and in there you might just spot an upside-down coat hanger. It's actually Brocky's cluster, but normally called the coat hanger. Down to the left of the Summer Triangle is a rather sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. that looks actually quite nice. Moving over towards the left, the square of Pegasus is rising. The very first planet discovered beyond our own solar system was around the star 51 Pegasi, which you can just make out, actually, with binoculars, down on the right-hand side of the square of Pegasus. And then if we start at the top left-hand star of the square, Alpharats, we're actually into Andromeda. If you move one bright star to the left, fork round a bit, to the right and up again to the next bright star, there turn through 90 degrees, passing another star, and the same distance again, you come to the great nebula in Andromeda, M31, which on a really dark night, with no moon, you can see with your unaided eye. But it shows up well in binoculars, and obviously very well indeed in, in telescopes. High above Andromeda, we have Cassiopeia, the W-shaped constellation. And over to its left, in the north-east, is rising the constellation of Perseus. I mention that because it's between those two that we have the radiant of the Perseid meteor shower that I'll talk about a bit later. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter can be seen in the southwest soon after sunset at the start of the month. It shines at magnitude minus 2.1, falling to minus 1.9 during the month. It has a disk some 38 arc seconds, again falling to 35 arc seconds across. Its equatorial band, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of its Galilean moons will be visible in a small telescope. Sadly, 
Now moving slowly eastwards in Libra, Jupiter is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of 15 degrees after sunset. Atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view. It might be worth considering purchasing an atmospheric dispersion corrector to counteract its effects. Well, Saturn. Now, Saturn was in opposition on the 27th of June. So it will be visible in the south at an elevation of about 15 degrees after sunset at the beginning of August. Its disk has an angular size of 18 arc seconds, falling to 17 during the month, as the brightness reduces from plus 0.2 to plus 0.4 magnitudes. The rings are still at about 26 degrees to the line of sight, so well open and spanning some 2.5 times the size of Saturn's globe. Again, Saturn, lying in Sagittarius, not far from the topmost star of the teapot, is slowly moving in retrograde motion to within a few degrees of M8, the Lagoon Nebula, and M20, the Triffid Nebula. As a low elevation that we find it, again, the atmosphere will affect our view. Now, Mercury, having passed between the Earth and the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction on August the 9th, becomes visible after the 20th before reaching greatest elongation east of the Sun on August the 26th. Then, some 18 degrees from the Sun in angle, it rises before 5 a.m., shining at magnitude zero. Well, Mars, I guess, should be the highlight of this month, is now moving in retrograde motion westwards in Capricornus. It made its closest approach to Earth since 2003, on the night of July the 30th, 31st. It actually moves into Sagittarius on the 23rd of August. It begins the month rising just after sunset, shining at its peak magnitude of minus 2.8. This falls to minus 2.2 by month's end. Its angular size exceeds 24 arc seconds until August the 8th, but falls to about 21 arc seconds at the start of September. With a small telescope, it should, but more of that, be able to spot details such as Certis Major on its salmon pink surface. From the UK, it will only reach an elevation of about 14 degrees when due south. So again, as for Jupiter and Saturn, the atmosphere will hinder our view. Now, as I write this, and more a bit later, a dust storm obscures much of the surface. So let's hope it clears during August. Venus. Well, Venus can be seen low in the west after nightfall, sinking towards the horizon as the month progresses. During August, its illuminated phase thins from about 57% to about 30%. But, at the same time, the angular size of the diameter increases from 20 to 29 arc seconds. The surface area reflecting the sun's light actually increases, and so the brightness increases from minus 4.3 magnitudes to an outstanding minus 4.6 magnitudes. Venus moves towards Spica in Virgo as August progresses and ends the month just one degree below the star. Sadly, however, they are then only about 10 degrees above the western horizon after sunset. 
You might need binoculars to pick them out, but please do not use them until the sun has set. Finally, what about some highlights? And we do have some this month. Well, obviously, the first one I should talk about is Mars. As I said, it claimed to its closest opposition to Earth since 2003 on the 27th of July. But sadly, two things are conspiring to limit our views. From the UK, its maximum elevation when on the meridian was only about 12 degrees when observed from a latitude of plus 52. So the atmosphere will not help. The second problem, as you may have learnt, is that as sometimes happens, Mars is now suffering a major dust storm, which at the end of July was making it very difficult to observe any features on the surface. These can happen every six to eight years and can last for several months. A small-scale dust storm began on May the 30th and by the 20th of June had engulfed the whole planet. Sadly, it could take as long as September for the dust to settle, thus greatly inhibiting our view of Mars, this apparition. However, it does look as though the south polar cap is still visible. Let's just hope that the dust storm subsides in time for other details on the surface, such as Certis Major and the Hellas Basin, to become visible in small telescopes. On the night of August 11th, 12th, these should be facing the Earth. And I should point out, there's a superb program called WINJUPOS, W-I-N-J-U-P-O-S, that you can download for free and will give a view of Mars' surface at any time showing what features should be visible. And on the night sky page, just search Jodrell Bank Night Sky, the screenshot I've included shows what, what might be visible on that particular night and also some of the things you have to click to get the picture of Mars on your screen. Well, Saturn is perhaps a little bit past its best. It reached opposition at the end of June, so it's now low as an elevation, sadly, of only about 14 degrees in the west-southwest as darkness falls, lying above the teapot of Sagittarius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. A small telescope will show the rings with magnifications of times 24 and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture with a magnification of about times 200 coupled with some good seeing will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system in their full glory. On the night sky page I include a chart to help you find two nice objects in the sky visible at this time of year the globular cluster M13 in Hercules and the double-double star in Lyra. It's just left to the star Vega, and the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, as I said, is often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen, but when observed with a telescope, each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence its name. August is also a good month to observe Neptune. It comes into opposition on the 7th of September, so it's going to be well placed both this month and next. Its magnitude is plus 7.9. So Neptune, with a disk just 3.7 arc seconds across, is easily spotted in binoculars, lying in the constellation Aquarius to the left of Lambda Aquarius 
as shown on the chart on the night sky page. It rises to an elevation of 27 degrees when due south. That's a bit better, isn't it? And given a telescope of 8 inches or more aperture and a dark, transparent night, one should even be able to spot the moon Triton. Of course, one of the highlights of August is the Perseid meteor shower, which peaks on the mornings of the 12th and 13th of August, so two very good mornings to observe it. The Perseid meteor shower, the meteors are produced by the debris from the comet Swift-Tuttle, and perhaps the early morning of the 12th will give us the best chance, if clear, of viewing the shower. But the peak is actually quite broad, and it's well worth observing on the nights before and after. And post-midnight is the best time, as then Perseus has risen higher in the sky. Most meteors are seen looking around 50 degrees from the radiant, which lies between Perseus and Cassiopeia. And the great thing is that this year, it is just after new moon, that's on the 11th of the month. So moonlight will not hinder our view. Do get to a dark sky location as best you can, at the very least south of a town or city where you might live. I found a very good dark sky map on the web, and on the night sky page I give the link. And that will give you a pretty good idea of which direction you might go to from where you live to get the darkest possible skies. And finally, two quick ones. On August the 14th, Venus lies just below a thin crescent moon. And on the 31st, it is just below Spica, Alpha Virginis. So soon after sunset, and looking very low in the west-southwest, you might be able to spot Venus just one degree below Spica. Again, you might need to use binoculars. That actually helps lessen the light remaining in the sky, but not the light from either Venus or Spica. But please, of course, do not use binoculars until after the sun has set. Well, quite a lot to look for. Slightly longer nights to do it in. Have fun. Thanks for that, Ian. Next up, we're going to head down south to look at the Southern Hemisphere night sky with Gabby. Kia ora, everyone. Gabriela Perry is here from Space Place at the Carter Observatory, and we're looking up at our skies in the month of August. The worst of winter is now behind us, and our nights are getting shorter, but we still have plenty of long nights to look up at the stars. There are some spectacular sights in our skies this month. We have four visible planets in our skies in the early evening, so bright that they are outshining the surrounding stars as they become the focus points scattered across our skies on the arc of the ecliptic, backdrop by the zodiac constellation. Our evening star in the northwest is the brilliant planet Venus. Because of its thick atmosphere, it reflects a lot of light from the sun. It shines up so brightly that you'd even see it in the sky before the sun sets. Now high up in the north, we'll see Jupiter looking stunning and golden. And following it is Saturn, followed by Mars. So Mars is currently rivaling Venus in its intensity in the east, looking particularly bright and red. It is quite close to the Earth, as it was in opposition at the end of July, and in the beginning of August, it will continue to be the closest it's been to Earth since 2003, and we are at 58 million kilometres from us. The most familiar of the constellations in our sky and will be our winter constellation, Scorpius, with its hooked tail and bleeding heart, Antares. Antares and the tail will make the fishhook of Maui in Maori Star Law. 
So Antares becomes the bloody bait on the hook. Antares is a red giant star about 600 light years away. Scorpius is also home to some deep space objects and were among the first to be catalogued by Charles Messier. That includes M4, M6, also known as a butterfly cluster, M7 and M80. Below or to the right of the scorpion's tail is what we call the teapot, made up of some of the brightest stars in the constellation of Sagittarius. It's upside down here in the southern hemisphere, and a Saturn can be found near the teapot's lid. Now between Scorpius and Sagittarius, we find the heart of our Milky Way in the bulge, an area designated as Sagittarius A, and it's believed to be the location of a supermassive black hole in the center of our home galaxy, and it's helping hold everything together. Uh, the best viewing time for deep sky objects will be mid-month, as we um, will have a mid new moon on the 11th, and the full moon will be on the 26th of August. Mid-month will also be the best time to look in the south. Um, so high up in the southwest, we'll have the Crux constellation, or the Southern Cross, and we can find this using the pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, the brightest stars in the constellation of Centaurus. And on a dark moonless night, away from the city lights, you might spot a dark patch nearby the Crux, by the second brightest star called Beta Crucis, and this is what we call the Colsack Nebula, a very famous dark nebula that's only visible because of all the starlight, the concentration of starlight we get along the edgewise view of the Milky Way. And dark nebulae block up light from faraway stars as they are densely packed pillars of frozen dust and gas. Colsack Nebula, much like coal itself, will ignite one day in about three or four million years, and become one of the brightest patches in the sky. The Colsack Nebula is sometimes known as the head of the moa here in New Zealand. Moa was a large, flightless, and unfortunately now extinct bird that dominated the lands here in New Zealand and now is commemorated in our night sky. You can track its body, and the long neck, body, and feet formed by the other dark nebulas that you can make up across the stretch of the Milky Way in our skies. On the other side of the south sky, there's a fainter constellation of Tucana, named after the South American bird, the Tucan, and it's home to a large globular cluster, 47 Tucane, which is quite beautiful to look at through a telescope, and it's close by to a bright star named Achenar. Achenar is quite an interesting star, it's a bit of a pancake star, because it's spinning around so fast in its own axis that it's kind of flattened itself a little bit. You can find Achenar at the end of the River of Stars, the constellation of Eridanus. In this area of the sky, you can also see two small kind of patches in the sky, and these are actually two irregular dwarf galaxies um, that orbit around our Milky Way. They are the Magellanic Clouds, and between them is actually a lesser-known constellation named Mensa, which is Latin for table. And this is one of my favorites because it's named after Table Mountain in Cape Town, South Africa. Even though I live in New Zealand, I was actually born and grew up in South Africa. This is a nice little constellation if you can pick it out. And if you're awake in the early morning, you can catch a glimpse of some of our dawn skies. We'll have Orion and Taurus in the east. And last month, these were telling the tale of Matariki, the Māori New Year. And there are some great views of the pot within Orion. It's a small little asterism, the base of the pot formed by Orion's belt, and with three fainter stars that form the handle. The middle of these is, in fact, the Great Orion Nebula. 
the diffuse nebula and one of the closest stellar nurseries we have to us here on Earth. So here astronomers have witnessed the birth of stars and protoplanetary disks, um, which are the disks that surround uh, young stars and which planets are formed observing this nebula. Well, um, that's all from me here in Wellington, New Zealand, and I wish everyone clear skies during the month of August. Thanks for that, Gabby. And now on to the feedback. We've had quite a few bits of feedback, actually. Laura, you've got some. You've got an email for us, I think. Oh, Is hi, it you? Hi, oh, it's, it's from Melbourne. Um, so I'm from Melbourne, just as the actual link to this. So we got an email from Dennis Avery from Melbourne, Australia, and they say, loving the podcast, and it definitely does not send me to sleep. Thanks for that. So, as a bit of backstory, we had a message about that, didn't we? There was a, an ongoing little Twitter thread of what what podcasts do people listen to to help with insomnia? Yes, and Al was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Dennis continues, uh, great job to all concerned. From down here in Melbourne, Australia, I appreciate the Southern Night Sky information, even if it is from our cousins across the ditch in New Zealand. Well done. Thanks for that, Dennis. It's nice to hear from someone from my neck of the woods. It's nice to know that we actually get down there. Yeah, um, yeah, We that's are actually true. listened to. Um, <laughs> Someone from Ben's namesake. Yeah, Ben. Read Ben. Ben McGuinness says, uh, Kudos for an excellent podcast. I especially enjoy the monthly Sky Talk offered by Ian Morrison and the Southern Sky piece is helpful too, as I don't get down that way often and would otherwise not know what I was missing. From Facebook, we've had a message from Greg M. Bernstein, who says, Excellent show. Glad you're back. Now I need to learn about superfluids. I have no idea what that is in reference to. I think that might be related to, um, I was on the June Extra Jod Bite, and I talked about superfluids and Uh, that might be related to that. You've got a little (laughs) (laughs) shout-out. And then, finally, from Twitter, Andrew Horner um, has said that it was worth the wait. So, our June-July Extra, and we've all been a little bit lackadaisical with I think busy is the word you're looking for yeah yeah fine yeah we've, we've been otherwise occupied but it was good to hear Ben back on the Jodcast in a really interesting interview so a and special treat for you Andrew yeah. and Ben is back again yay yeah <laughs> Ben has a real postdoc job now um, which means that he has more time to do this sort of thing you'll be hearing much more of him I'm just dropping him in it now <laughs> Ben you will be here forever yeah. you can never leave so, if you want to get in contact with us, tell us how great Ben is. Then or send us any Im- uh, artist impressions of Blueberry Yes, Earth. yes, please send us Blueberry Planets. We will pin all of them onto our walls. Yeah. But you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. That is the end of the show. That's all we've got time for this this episode. Thanks to Luke Hart for the interview. The editors were Jake Starberg-Morgan, Emma Alexander and Tom Scragg. The producer was Jake Starberg-Morgan. And until next time, shot on! <laughs>